you can look on the front of your worship guide and see this new series graphic, Breathing Life into Our Rooms. And some of you may be brand new here. That hand-drawn picture on the front is a picture of our building. Uh, that is our first building up at the front there that you passed as you drove back here. And we will be uh, inhabiting that building soon. And if you were to walk into the building right now, I suspect that everything would be quiet. And you, everything would be still. Uh, because building materials, it, it's only building materials, and building materials are brick and mortar. Uh, they're inanimate, and they're lifeless in a certain way, right? In Ezekiel 37, the prophet walks into a valley of dry bones. And I think what's described there is the valley is still, and it's lifeless. And I imagine that's much how our building is if you were to walk in there right now. But Ezekiel asked God, now will these dry bones live? Now he's talking about the nation of Israel and their obedience to Yahweh, but his question is, who will breathe life into these dry, lifeless bones? So our building is comprised of rooms. It has many rooms. And in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to actually go room by room through our building. And we were asking the question of some significant rooms, will these dry bones live? Who will breathe life into these rooms? And what will be their God-given purpose? And so over the next three weeks, we're going to consider three rooms. And today we'll start with our largest room, the sanctuary, which is purpose for worship. Now, to worship someone or something is to be possessed by them. If a young man falls in love with a woman, he worships the ground she walks on. He'll do anything to have her. He's possessed by her. In an art gallery, you may see people mesmerized by da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Monet's water lilies. They're possessed, they're mesmerized, they're transfixed because they're possessed by beautiful art. Now, Christian worship means being possessed by God. The point of it is God. What happens is the enlarging of God. It's all about God. We're changed by God. The power of it is God. The primary emphasis of worship is the vertical plane. And yet I think when we gather on a morning like this, a lot of us may be more conscious of the community, what's on the horizontal plane. So we get here uh, on a morning like this, and we're chit-chatting with other people, and when we go home, we'll evaluate mostly what happened on the horizontal plane. Who did I talk to? Who did I see? Even the people at the front, how did she sing, or what did he say? So one of the features now is the room in which we do all our horizontal stuff interacting, and the room where we're meant to do our vertical stuff is one and the same. We're doing it all right here. But when we get into the building, those functions, to a large degree, are going to be separated and placed. So we're asking the question today, how will we purpose our sanctuary? 
And we've been saying we're in a season of growth and change. And when you've been established in one way of doing things, it's really hard to establish a new one. We get deep set in practices. And when we have to change those practices, uh, it's always hard. And we ask the question, why? But we're asking the question, how might our practices change in our new building, especially related to the room in which we worship? I'm going to turn your attention back to your worship God. Our Isaiah 6 reading is Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet of God. But it takes place in a worship service. Isaiah has gone into the temple for worship. And he, all he does is he describes what happens there. Isaiah's worship starts with seeing. Worship always starts with the visual. Verse 1 begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, what does he say? What are those words? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now listen, in the Old Testament, seeing God is complicated. It was said that you, no one could look at, upon God and live. Moses was the only one who was allowed to see God's face. Yet in the New Testament, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Isaiah may have had a vision of God. What Jesus invites us to do in worship is to see God with eyes of faith. Thomas said of the resurrected Jesus, unless I see his wounded hands inside, I will not believe. But Jesus said, blessed are those who don't see with their naked eyes and yet believe. So worship starts with seeing. It starts with seeing through eyes of faith. And a lot of what we're trying to do is see God through eyes of faith. So as we're talking about this seeing, what Isaiah sees is mostly a contrast between God and man. So Isaiah says, he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on his throne. And so I think we're meant to picture Isaiah uh, actually literally looking up, or at least with the eyes of his heart. His face is lifted heavenward. And what he sees is Yahweh high up on his throne. So Isaiah is extending the, different, the distance. He's extending the difference, but distance between uh, God and man. And so he sees God uh, high up on the throne. So what he's doing is creating the dimension spatially of worship. So Isaiah is down here on the ground, and the Lord is high up in the heavens. Not only that, he's exalted, which is yet another point. It means not only is God high up, but he's supreme. He's above all others. He's worthy of praise. That's what worship means. It means to ascribe worth and praise. So Isaiah's emphasizing really the distance between him and God. See, sometimes we'll come along and all we'll say is, we'll act as if we've got God in our hip pocket. And Isaiah is saying, no, where worship starts is seeing the transcendent God. God who is the holy other. So Isaiah is taking us in to worship, and he's seeing a vision of God. And I think a good word to use here about his seeing is the word behold. He's beholding God. What does it mean when you behold? You behold something beautiful. You behold something priceless. 
So like the writer in Psalm 27 who says, he came gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. So listen, Isaiah is in the midst of a horizontal community. He's in temple worship. It's communal worship. There are others there. Maybe he has good friends on his left and his right. But at this moment, all of his attention is vertical. It's heavenward. All of his attention. Uh, God is enlarged in this vision of worship, and his attention is entirely on God. He's possessed by God. He's beholding God on his throne. And all creation is praising God. It's not just Isaiah and this little personal worship service. Verse 2, look with me. Above him, that is the true king seated on the throne, were seraphim, which were angel-like beings, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. So Isaiah doesn't say how many, how many seraphim, but if you look over into Revelation uh, 5.11, it says there were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of seraphim, which means millions. So it would be not unrealistic or unreasonable to, to, to picture right now. <coughs> There's the king on the throne, and just the, the scene is filled with these seraphim. And they're flying, and they, they're covering their eyes. Maybe they're covering their eyes. The point is to emphasize the difference. Even angelic beings can't just casually stare at the eternal God. And with two wings, they cover their feet. And Alec Motyer says, maybe this is submission and obedience. The seraphim disavow choosing their own path. And finally, with two wings, they are flying. And that is part of their active praising. Verse 3, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So what I'm trying to do here is just give you a picture of this really big worship service. There's a multitude there, and the emphasis is on the contrast of God the King with every other created being. And so Ray Ortland writes about this moment. Holy, holy, holy is not just repetition, it's emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one, it's perfection times perfection times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes himself absolutely, even from the sinless angels. The Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness, Psalm 29, the majesty of God's holiness, Exodus 15, the un. un incomparability of God's holiness. Isaiah 40, he is not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. God alone is God. He is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. He alone is holy. That's what Isaiah is getting here. All of creation is saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke, which is simply what happened in the Old Testament when someone was in the presence of God. So how does Isaiah respond to this vision of God? So look with me at verse 5. He says, what does he say? Woe to me, thank you. Woe to me. I cried, I am ruined. 
So Moyer says the word for ruined here is from the Hebrew word to be rendered silent. So Isaiah is rendered mute before the God of glory. So why is it when people see great art, often they're speechless? They just stand there speechless and they're mesmerized. And why is it that when people go into cathedrals, their voices drop to a whisper? It's because the presence of God invites muteness. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Isaiah is giving us a, a picture here. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on this throne, his response is he's ruined. He's rendered wordless at the sight of it, at the awareness of the presence of someone so much greater. So Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So seeing God in worship, what we're finding here in, in verse 5, uh, always leads to confession. So he sees God more clearly, then he sees himself more clearly. That's always how worship works. You start with trying to see God, and then you see yourself, and you see your need. And so seeing God in worship always leads to confession. Isaiah is seeing himself not as a sinner in theory. He's not seeing someone else's sin. He's seeing the desperateness of his own sin in contrast to the holy God. And then this, and this is such a remarkable moment. Here we are buried deep in the Old Testament. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, the seraphim are literally the burning ones. And in this scene, what happens is you just picture sort of the scene. They're flying all around. One of the seraphs peels off and gets a burning coal with tongs. And he's holding it with tongs, not because he can't take the heat. After all, he's a burning one. But he took it with the coal with tongs because it's a holy thing. And this holy thing, it's this holy thing that touches Isaiah's dirty mouth. But it does not hurt him. It heals him. And I stand with some of the other uh, scholars that I read that said uh, that we have every reason to believe that this burning coal is a symbol of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Because Christ himself became the ultimate burnt offering to finish the work for the atoning of sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And so what happens here is Isaiah is seeing the holy God, the good and glorious God, and he's seeing himself. And then he's receiving in that moment God's grace. 
So here we are, again, buried in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, is this spectacular vision of God's grace. He's being changed by grace. It's the power of grace. It's all grace in a worship service. And what happens next? This is verse 8. God's grace invites Isaiah to loyal obedience. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. So it's a marvelous picture of a, of a worship service. And there are many scholars and many um, sort of ecclesial scholars who will point to Isaiah 6 as we talk about what it means to be involved in a worship service, what it means to model what we do uh, in the biblical tradition. And what we find here, uh, so, you know, Isaiah is being called to be a prophet of God, but what we find here uh, is that Isaiah is being possessed by God. Something is happening that's drawing him into just a bigger picture of God. And he's being changed by God. And now he's ready to heed God's call. So listen, we're talking about uh, what we learn for purposing our own sanctuary up there. Now again, some of you, uh, maybe it's your first time here, you didn't even know what that building was when you drove in. But on the left side, as you look at it, there's a room uh, that we intend to be our sanctuary. And we're asking, what are we learning here in Isaiah 6? Now, last Sunday, uh, we, had, we finished our all-church gathering in the sanctuary. And so some of you can picture the room. And so I'd love for you just to inhabit that room with your, in your mind's eye right now. Just think about what you see. Look to the left and the right. Look up. Look forward. Look back. Think about what you see in that room. And if you haven't ever been in that room, uh, maybe you drove in, you glanced at it uh, as you came in today, uh, or maybe you would just want to listen and we can tell you a little bit about it. So first, as we think about purposing that room, uh, we're calling it a sanctuary. Now the Oxford English Dictionary says a sanctuary is the innermost recesses of a temple where people meet with God. It's a room for meeting with God. What do we primarily do? I know we'll do other things in there. It's a multi-purpose room of sorts, but what is the primary thing we're doing? We're meeting with God. It's a place where we can talk to God, we can pray to God, we worship God. We just really want to highlight that the thing is really centered around God. There's so few spaces like that. Any other room you walk into in the West End of Richmond or wherever you live and work, that room is purposed for people. I guarantee it. Almost every other room you walk in, it's purposed for the horizontal interaction. But we are really trying to purpose and hear the call for a special room, a room where people can go and they can commune with God. So we're calling it a sanctuary. And we're doing some things uh, architecturally that are unique. And I would wonder, I would love it if maybe that's a room that's open to the public, you know, people who are down and distressed in West Richmond and beyond, maybe who are driving by during the week and are looking for a room where they can go and talk with God. So the first thing that's distinctive uh, is that we're purposing that room and calling it a sanctuary. Second, architecturally, we've designed it as a tall space. The height of the ceiling really gives us a room 
that it seems like Isaiah's worship service would have worked well in. The height of the ceiling invites vertical conversation. It's a space that lends itself to seeing the Lord high and exalted, seated on his throne. It's a room that raises our eyes heavenward because simply of the tall height of the ceiling. And so I just want you to feel that when you go in and see if it doesn't lift your eyes and lift your face unto God. Third, we intend all creation to join in the praise of God in our sanctuary. We may not have millions of visible seraphim flying around, but we've designed a room with plenty of tall glass. We have glass from floor to ceiling. One of the reasons for that is we want you to be able to look through that glass and see the tall trees themselves reaching up to sky in praise to God. We are saying that all of these trees are like steeples. And when you're worshiping and you see the other trees reaching to the sky like steeples, we want you to think all creation is joining in the praise that is happening in this room. Fourth, we're emphasizing beauty in our sanctuary. In Psalm 27, he went into the house of the Lord to gaze upon God's beauty. We're planning on installing an art piece in the front. We won't have that for day one, but we want something beautiful and textured at the front. And we want something where people walk in. They don't see technology primarily. We will have screen, a screen, but they don't see technology pr uh, primarily. You will see something that points you to the glory of God. It reminds you of the glory of God. It makes you think this room is purposed for the glory of God. And we've got some people working on that. Fifth, it's a room where purposing will render you speechless. So you can attune your voice to God. You know, when our voices drop, we do that because we're trying to be aware of the presence of another. And in cathedrals of old, there was often a small room for transitioning from the noisy, busy public square into a room where your voice drops to a whisper and you grow more aware of the presence of God. Now, Presbyterians have always had these little rooms. Some of you, if you go into any Presbyterian church in Richmond, you'll find a room, and it's often called the narthex. And it's a busy room, and it's where you hand out the worship gods and where ushers greet you and where stuff happens and people are chit-chatting. But it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be a room that helps you transition in your spirit from a busy, noisy room in the public square to a holy place where you can talk with God. And so we've got a little room, and we're going to try to make that room beautiful. And we're purposing that small room to be a vestibule or an ante or beginning room. And we want to put some things in there that will help us and prepare us for conversations with God. Well, sixth, we're purposing our sanctuary to be a place where we have a chance to receive God's grace. There's a cross featured prominently at the front to emphasize Christ's finished work. And each worship service, uh, we try to organize around Isaiah 6. We start with a call to worship, which points to God. Hymns and songs of praise that are theological, pointing to something about God. Then we have prayers, including confession, as we see ourselves more clearly. Then a message, which is a proclamation of the good news of God's grace. 
And finally, responding to that grace, we are sent out into the world with a song and a benediction to heed God's call. So do you see how we form services here? And they are much like the pattern of Isaiah 6. And the center of it all is the proclamation, the opportunity to be, to be changed by God's grace. Well, seventh, and now we're getting to the end. We're multiplying our weekly worship services in that room from 1 to 2, beginning December 4th. And the reason is not to relieve overcrowding. The reason is to fulfill our evangelistic mission. We can provide more seats at opportune hours for more people who haven't had a chance to be in a room like this to have a vertical conversation, to come and be involved in the worship of God through Jesus Christ. And so we're expecting to have to build these services. We're expecting there to be seats, and you can continue to invite your friends and neighbors to come and be a part of one of those services. But it's all is meant to serve this vision of the worship of God. So, uh, just finally, the point is we're purposing this room to be where we are possessed by God. We're worshiping God. Here's a phrase I love. We're training our souls to long for God both through the practices and the architecture of what we've planned for you there. So almost every other room in West Richmond and beyond emphasizes horizontal communication in the room. And listen, we'll have horizontal communication in the room. There'll be plenty of horizontal communication in the room. The point is not to not have horizontal communication in the room. The point is to say that there's something different that it's its primary purpose. Next week, we're going to talk about our room, the commons, where we're going to vision cast, especially for the quality of horizontal communication. And all of it kind of bleeds back and forth. But we're trying to be clear. Uh, it's not one in the same room any longer. We have two places um, to be called and to be commissioned as a church. So, today we're talking about our sanctuary and it's a room where we might experience low whispers and uplifted eyes. It's a room where we might see heads and hearts bowed. It's a room where people will be kneeling and perhaps standing with arms upraised. It's a room where people will come forward for communion. It's a room where perhaps someone may even fall prostrate face down before the holy room God. It's a room where people will experience the glorious grace of God and be changed by what they receive. It will require uh, some change for all of us as we try to purpose this room. We're all accustomed to all of it happening in the same room. And it's hard to form new practices when old practices are so deep set. But friends, now we have the luxury of a room for the worship of God. Right now, if we were to go up there, it's all inanimate. It's lifeless. It's made of building materials. But as Ezekiel was standing in the Valley of Dry Bones, all of a sudden, if you were to read on, he heard the chains rattling. And he felt the breeze blowing. And I wonder if you hear the chains rattling and you feel the breeze blowing now. The breath of God was breathing life into that dead valley. And I think the breath of God is breathing life into that building, beginning 
with the sanctuary which is purposed for the worship of God. Thanks be to God for his glorious gifts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your provision in every way, uh, your provision of this beautiful outdoor sanctuary that we've enjoyed, and your provision for a beautiful indoor sanctuary where we and many other people can become more aware of you and your salvation. We pray it would be a place where more people will come and see your glory and be changed by your grace. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.